Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And as always, at the end of the month, the last Wednesday is reserved for Emily Jashinsky, who is an interesting per- person, as she always makes fun of me for not including her in the interesting person bucket. But Emily is a uh, senior fellow with us at the Independent Women's Forum. She's also the culture editor over at The Federalist. Um, she is the co-host of CounterPoints with Ryan Grimm, uh, along with Crystal and Sager over at Breaking Points, which is a huge political podcast if you have not checked that out. Um, and she has various other hats, including at Yaf uh, and, and elsewhere. Emily, the hats are just multiplying. I don't know how you expect an old person like me to remember them every every month. Did you remember my IWF hat? Uh, that was the first hat I said. Okay, good, good. I can't, it's hard for me to pay attention. I'm old, not senile, okay? <laughs> Okay. Can't keep up with everything. I can't possibly be expected to listen to everything you say. Um, well, there's been, I feel like there's been a f- literal flood of things that has happened um, since the last time we spoke. But I want to start out by talking about the Tucker Carlson interview with Trump, because there's been a lot of debate talk and we, we will get to the debate talk. But um, I feel like in light of the mugshot heard around the world, um, which also wiped out any interest in, in this interview, uh, there, Trump gave a long and in-depth interview with Tucker Carlson while the debate was going on. Um, and actually, the angle I wanted to talk to you about uh, about it with um, is the media angle, because this is obviously a shot across the bow to Fox, right? Tucker um, putting out this interview with the uh, former president and, and Republican frontrunner, right, um, who obviously brings big ratings, right, as Fox is conducting their Republican debate, which Trump had refused uh, to join. So one, what does that say about the landscape? And then what did you think of the interview? Yeah, he put it out at 8.55 p.m. and the debate was ready to start at 9 p.m. So to your point, Inez, about whether it's a shot across the bow, clearly, to your point, absolutely was. Uh, you don't do that unless you're taking a shot across the bow, that 8.55 dropping. Uh, so much across the bow as uh, directly into the captain's cabin. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and and it's a, I think it was what, like an hour long or a 40 minute interview, something like that. Um, so it was really long. And actually what I did at the Federalist was immediately pull, because he uploaded the video to Twitter. Maybe I shouldn't give my tricks away, but uploaded the video to Twitter. I immediately pulled the transcript of the entire video so that uh, while the media, and I think Tucker kind of understands how this works, and so does Trump, while the media was covering the debate fastidiously, because this is the first debate of the cycle, um, and everyone was there, half the people, half the media was actually in uh, the wonderful city of Milwaukee, not far from where I grew up, and uh, I was going through the transcript as I was trying to pay attention to the Republican debate in order to figure out where we needed coverage, uh, and that was a totally intentional thing to sort of split the media in half, barely give uh, journalists time to prepare, which I'm not asking for any sympathy whatsoever, nor will I be extending it to my fellow journalists in the hollowed hollowed halls of the so-called mainstream media. But it was very, very strategic. And uh, I, I would say, actually, I think there was too much coverage of the debate. I know we talked er- of the debate. I know we talked earlier. It, it might not even be a volume thing so much as it is a tone. When you have you mentioned the ratings turned out to be pretty good for Fox. I think Brian Stelter, someone like our Oliver Darcy or Brian Stelter had expected it to get four or five million viewers on Fox News. Uh, and it did about 12 million. That's a big number. Those are, those are good ratings for Fox. It's less than half of what the first debate in 2016 got. Um, and for some understandable reasons, being that one being that Donald Trump wasn't there. Yeah. And the field is so a little. Reasons named Trump. Yeah, named Donald Trump. The feels a little bit smaller. Um, so I don't think, and, and also linear TV has declined dramatically in the years since. Um, so, you know, it, it, was it so important? Yes. Um, but I also think, not even juxtaposing it with Tucker, but when you don't have the person who's up by 40 points in the room, uh, even in Iowa, at the time of the debate in the real clear politics average, Trump was up by, I think, 26 points. And that's just in Iowa. When that guy's not in the room, um, the coverage should, I think, keep that in mind. And that isn't to say they should have been like, what Tucker's doing with Trump is so much more important, but they should have had way more perspective on what this debate was going to do. And I actually think that was intentional. I think they knew that the debate, the debate wasn't as important as they were saying it was. Um, I am curious, though, to maybe argue with you about uh, Tucker Carlson. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, so to put my full cards on the table before I give my opinion, so people know where I'm coming from in terms of a partisan perspective, I'm very, very pro the independent media project. I really hoped that when Tucker was forced out of Fox, that it would be a tipping point for new media, um, that he would be able to use that platform to really open up the kind of um, questions and discussion and, and um, yeah, questions that Republican voter voters would have answered among their candidates, right? Their potential candidates. Um, and I, and the blaze TV media forum that seemed to be coming true. So Tucker gave a series of what I would say were very incisive interviews, you know, demolished a few candidates, uplifted a few other ones on the basis of things that I think, whether I agree with them or not in any individual case, there are things that Republican base voters want to distinguish the candidates on questions of foreign policy, um, posture, right? Uh, questions of about corporate power and how um, any re- potential Republican president would deal with with corporate, both economic and cultural power, right? Those, these are questions um, that, with the exception of Ukraine, didn't really make it into the Fox debate, right? Questions about, uh, you know, Chris Rufo called his book Cultural Revolution, right? I would have liked to see questions, more questions asked about the cultural revolution. Those did not really make it in to um, the the Fox News debate. And we can talk about why. I mean, the candidates didn't really force them in there either. Um, But uh, so all of that background is to say that even though I'm not the greatest fan of Trump, I would be very happy to see this interview essentially do the Breitbart thing, uh, Andrew Breitbart, and force the mainstream to actually consider independent media because they would have to cover this interview, right? Um, because the the president the, or former president and the leading presidential candidate now quadruple indicted um, Donald Trump would have either said something that was so newsworthy, there had to be a, a series of or like a news cycle coverage about it, or because it simply, you know, was so... Uh, important, uh, like that, that he, he answered questions about how he would govern, right. That, that the conservative media ecosystem, including Fox, for example, would have to pick up now. I doubt they, you know, they're, they're petty. So I doubt they would like play the clip or whatever, but like they would have to, if if there was something said there that they would have had to cover, they would have covered it. Right. And none of that happened. And I, I actually blame Tucker Carlson for this. Um, I don't think that he asked questions that were particularly, uh, like there are questions designed to turn off your typical like boomer con normie who was like, well, Trump's not on the Fox debate. Maybe I should switch over to Tucker Carlson on the, on, on this like newfangled streaming thing. Right. Um, and the questions were like designed to send that person right back to Fox. I feel like the first question out of the gate was about Jeffrey Epstein. Right. And I don't even care. There could be a question about Jeffrey Epstein at the end. You know, I'm not like sensitive to the issue of Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, it's sort of interesting to talk about. But if you have the leading presidential candidate from one of the two parties, you start with that, you know, not how would you solve, like, what, what would you do about the, the war in Ukraine? Not, you know, what would you do about the fact that, uh, you know, American corporations have a, a very particular um, cultural perspective, not the fact that, uh, you know, people are are uh, de- still dealing with extremely high prices, both at the gas pump and uh, in the grocery store, and, and people are increasingly squeezed out and have no savings left to deal with this um, ongoing inflation crisis, right? None of those issues are what was started with. Um, not about Bidenomics, nothing, right? It's Jeffrey Epstein. I couldn't think of a more online thing to start with. And then the next question was about whether or not he's afraid the deep state is going to kill him. And I feel like at that point, the the curious normie who turned that on thinking, well, maybe it is time to like to cut the cable. Maybe it's time to bring in a larger, um, you know, a new selection of news sources into, you know, the news diet just turns off and leaves. Why am I wrong? A couple, a couple of things, and they're not necessarily um, arguments that you're wrong. I guess I would, I would say, I do think it's interesting the position that Tucker is in. I think is really interesting right now because 
Um, you're very much right. And we talked about this when it happened. The Blaze Forum was extremely productive and, and focused on the sort of so-called kitchen table issues, but also balanced with issues that are kind of important in the abstract, the abstract, uh, in, in the abstract in general, like questions about uh, military policy and questions about what freedom is, et cetera, et cetera. But so he, he balanced those really well there. Whereas this interview, I think there was a lot of news in it. For instance, you have uh, Tucker asking, does the deep state need to kill you now? And Donald Trump responding to that. Uh, but that's not a kitchen table question, to your point. And that's very different than what was, or, or at least what people tune in to a debate to hear. Um, and, and so I actually understand that. And I think Tucker, as he's finding his place outside of Fox, is right now really enjoying kind of getting lost in these conversations. Uh, he did both Andrew Tate and Andrew Tate's brother for an extended period of time, long, long interviews with both of them. And a lot of people have sort of interpreted those as Tucker sort of putting his stamp of endorsement on the Tate brothers, I think he's been too friendly to them, more friendly to him than he should have. I also think he's falling into the um, into this Joe Rogan mold that works really well for Joe Rogan and Russell Brand, uh, but is not what people want out of Tucker Carlson. Uh, what people want out of Tucker Carlson is much more hard hitting. Uh, and, and so I think we're seeing him um, in the transition from Fox to whatever's next um, because he's, you know, reportedly looking to potentially start another outlet um, and to, to you know, build up infrastructure to a new project, whatever it is. I think the transition, uh, this interview was uh, an example of why that transition still needs to change, why there needs to be sort of like a next stage of, of Tucker Carlson. Um, because I think his, his real value to the media ecosystem and to American politics is when he's, you know, really hard hitting. So I agree with that completely. Um, I also think, oh, but I, I think from the perspective of what Tucker was doing, that's, that's sort of how I would explain it. Um, or in my own head, that's what makes most sense is uh, explaining why he uh, used that interview to have this like very long uh, conversation with Trump that was winding from uh, pet interest to pet interest. Uh, on the other hand, um, this question of what constitutes a kitchen table issue is really fascinating. And it's a huge problem for Republicans right now because there's, I hear from people who work with activists um, in the sort of Republican grassroots base that what they care about is DOJ weaponization of government stuff. I pretty much guarantee you that is not weighing heavily on any independent voter's mind. Uh, they, they might really detest it or they might not know what to think, uh, but it's probably not informing their voting pattern uh, whatsoever. What is probably informing their voting pattern is, like you said, uh, it's not UFOs. It's, it's probably not Jeffrey Epstein. Um, it's probably going to be, like you, to your point, Bidenomics. It's probably going to be uh, competence, like basic competence, ability to do the job. It's probably going to be education uh, and, and issues like that. So I, I agree with you and then also kind of disagree with you. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly where I disagree with you here. Uh, but like, I do think we're talking you're... about this earlier to be clear uh, on uh, for people who don't listen to NatCon Squad, which we always do every week. And, and Emily and I were sort of she was like, don't forget that a lot of people actually do care about the Jeffrey Epstein case. And it represents something larger about mistrusting uh, and mistrusting institutions. And I, I, you know, I'll take that rebuke, I guess. Of, of But it does strike me as a very online, even though people know about it, and might be interested in it. I, I, the number of people who would put that as like, this is the first thing I want to know from a presidential candidate, I feel like has to be small. Um, but I don't even think he has to appeal to independence. It could be to the Republican base, right? That's a legitimate, those are the people who are going to be voting right now in the primary, right? Um, he could have focused on weaponization and indictment issues in a way that wasn't so like conspiratorial sounding, right? Which like, there's plenty there without going off into like, CIA assassination land, right? Um, there, there's a ton there, and he could have gotten some really newsworthy things from Trump that way. I feel like, um, you know, how does it feel to to be the only the first president who's been indicted? 
right? By a, by a sitting president. And he kind of got there at the end, but like it wasn't in the first 15 to 20 minutes. It didn't like that would have been a, a banger of a first question, right? Well, he also uh, and Trump, 250 years to have been indicted. How does that feel? And, and Trump has also been putting out some policy uh, platform kind of ideas that would have been interesting to get him on the record about to ask him, you know, certain things that would have been different that that could be different this time around. There was a hilarious video circulating last week of what Donald Trump said about many of the people he hired and in fact put in his cabinet. And then uh, what he said about them after they had left or been fired, that I actually think would have been a great thing to ask him about asking you, you say you only hire the best people. What about like, like literally just watch this video and respond to it. Like there, there are a lot of legitimate questions that Republicans have. And he could have asked, he he didn't really ask specific questions about DeSantis or any of these. And was rigged. How do you plan on winning this one? Right. Yeah. What changed between 2020 and now? Um, These are like really important questions from the Republican base perspective. And I just I don't know as as much as I I think it'd be fascinating to find out exactly what happened to Jeff Epstein. I I, I don't know. Jeff, you're on you're on a basis. I did it just for you, Emily. Um, Well, can I just I want to make one bigger point, though, because I think it's really interesting what you're saying. I heard similar things. And actually, the more that we've talked about it, I do agree with you. I don't think that interview was as strong as it should have been. I also think I've heard people complain that Fox's UFO question, like if you're going to do it, at least ask it in a serious way. I've heard people complain about the way they used Oliver Anthony in the opening um, and and like just didn't ask as many kind of nuts and bolts, bolts questions as, as people would have liked. And the bigger point, I think, in all of this is actually what's hurting the DeSantis campaign in general, which is that you have this really serious issue of wanting to be part of the the so-called new right wanting to show that you understand and empathize with the concerns of this new coalition of Republican voters, but not knowing how to do that, not knowing how to uh, actually have a Republican party that can uh, bring together those rust belt union workers and suburban moms um, in the Trump era. And I see that over and over again, just like this, it's a real struggle. I think it might even be the defining struggle of the right right now, because it's not just a matter of knowing that your voters in a different place. It's a matter of knowing then uh, what they want, how to give it to them when they're these disparate coalitions that seem mutually exclusive. And I do think like with the UFO question, there are a lot of people who could vote Republican, not a, not a huge swath of people, but with Jeffrey Epstein and and UFOs, Republicans talking in sane terms about both of those issues, I think does make a difference to uh, some real average Americans. I don't think they're like phantoms. I think those are, are real people. Um, but these like just gesturing at the issue or, or talking about it in sort of cartoonish way uh, that doesn't show a full commander grasp on like what the issue actually is and what it means, what the big implications are and what the big revelations have been, um, it just shows this like kind of half-hearted or lost, um, that p- people are sort of lost in the wilderness of the Trump coalition. <laughs> and I, again, like, I think this is one of the big things that's plaguing the DeSantis campaign. I bring it up time and again, the sort of interspersing pictures of an actual fictional serial killer, Patrick Bateman, with your candidate. Um, <laughs> like You're trying to do something for a very small group of people that's actually going to do way ma- more harm with a bigger group of people than it will help with that smaller group of people. And that I think is a really hard balance to strike. Um, Yeah. I mean, there are also different ways to talk to different groups of people simultaneously, right? That's not as easy as it used to be, but this is in some ways a very old political problem, right? Like uh, in the 19th century um, American presidential campaigns, they would say different things on different train stops, right? Because like, especially Mm -hmm. on tariff issues or whatever, where it's very geographical, some States are benefiting from it. Some are not right. You have presidential candidates literally contradicting themselves. Obviously, you can't quite do that as well in the age of 24-7 media and everybody having a... <laughs> um, but it's always, it's sort of a traditional part of politics, I guess, uh, is what I would say is to to campaign on different messages to different people. Um, but, I mean, it, it just I just felt like it was a big missed opportunity. And, and all of us to say, I think I'm going to lose this bet that I, I uh, set with a friend of mine um, after Tucker got forced out of Fox. Uh we set a calendar invite a year from that date, whenever that was, I've already forgotten um, to see if Tucker 
would have more or less mainstream relevance Mm. um, uh, after having left Fox. And I think I'm probably going to like, I'm already pretty sure I'm going to lose that bet. We're only like three months in. Yeah. Anything could happen. I mean, it could turn around. I don't know. But I was really hoping that he would start like a media company or that he would continue to bring, um, I feel like that, that he sat in that perfect nexus between normal conservative voters, like, um, and then bringing in like the spice from sort of the people that, you know, I enjoy reading or whatever, the like kind of very online new right. And also like, you know, very online, right. Right. Um, people. And I thought it was actually a really important function of mainstreaming some of these ideas, um, in, in a setting where they were presented with, with some seriousness to go to, I guess, to the point that you've been making, they were presented with some seriousness, not just like, obviously some of it about like, you know, sunning your balls or whatever was clearly (laughs) (laughs) for, for the the little spice and fun in life, but he's kind of gone all in that direction. And I, I just don't know that that's going, I, I feel like that's actually going to lose him that special place that he had with one foot in very online world and one foot in normie world where he was actually um, the bridge between those two things. And I, 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 I don't know. I just hate to see that happen because I really do. Again, I really do want to see a wider, I want to see someone compete with Fox news, right? I want to see um, Americans getting their news from a more democratized source and not just the people under 35, right? Like the people over 35 getting their news from a more diversified uh, you know, media class where um, there, there is some room to actually have like wildly different perspectives and, and, and wildly different like focus in terms of what is important. So anyway, I would have been fine if there was like, just like the UFO question, there was a Jeffrey Epstein question, but it just seemed like the first 15 minutes of that interview was designed to push all of those people who would, who had been watching Tucker Carlson, you know, on Fox news back to Fox News. And I just I don't want to see that happen, but you know. I will say he is he is re- he's reportedly trying to start a media company. Like he actually is trying to do something new. I think he got fired what in April, April or May. So it's been a few months and I don't know what exactly his plans are, but I am I do think some of this is like transitional. It's something that he's doing in the meantime while he's working to build something new. That isn't to say it'll give him more mainstream relevancy. And and actually one of the interesting points about that is it'll get to the the power that Fox News has, which I still think is is pretty vast, despite the fact that all of these um, other paths uh, to circumvent the gates that were long uh, guarded by the, the gatekeepers like Fox and NBC and CNN, um, you, you now have like there's been a bunch of holes poked in, in the wall. Um, so I get that, like the gatekeepers are less powerful than ever before. But I do think it's uh, to your point, like absolutely those gatekeepers are still very, very powerful. Yeah, it's funny because they are losing that's why I think it's so important. That's why I hate to see an opportunity in my view like this blown is because they're simultaneously losing some of that gatekeeping power, but they seem completely not to understand why. And so they're clamping down. And I, I like Fox, I think will probably take a more moderate tack on, on a whole host of issues, gender ideology. Like, I mean, all the things that apparently piss off the bosses at Fox. Right. And there is going to be, an audience that's disaffected by that. And yeah. I think I think it would be a good thing for for the entire media landscape if if Fox were to lose that. I'm not saying they're going away. They're going to be a successful channel, right? But they will be a successful channel and not the successful channel on the right. Um I think that would be a good thing and it just I don't know, it seems like it's a really important tipping point for media, which is why but it could easily go the other way, right? It could right. easily just, they're doubling down now um, and it could easily go the other way and it just still becomes the, the mass default. And, um, you know, the rest of us are sort of relevant, relegated to uh, the, the fringes of, of, of the debate um, in uh, online forums or whatever. And, and at least for the next, you know, 10 or 20 years, I don't see that. I could see it not changing for another 10 or 20 years. And I, I, I would like to see it change a lot faster than that. 
Well, this is important because it's like when, you know, say Gina Carano had been fired from Disney by the the Disney Star Wars production Mandalorian uh, 10 years before she actually was, she wouldn't have had a place to land, right? Like, I mean, first of all, that wouldn't have happened 10 years before. But like, the point is, when you are the alternative to the old, you have to be really, really good. And that isn't to say it's easy, but you have to actually do a competitive job. And for some reasons, that's easier to do now than it was in the past. Um, not everything looks like a blog spot. That's like an alternative <laughs> to like the the gatekeeping traditional media. But you can't, uh, you, you really don't have as much room for error. Like the, the so-called mainstream media has so much room for error because they have monopolized the space. But, and they have the power of the, they have the support of the entire political and cultural class. But um, when you're trying to be an alternative space, alternative space, you don't have as much room for error and you actually do have to be really good um, because otherwise people are just going to go with muscle memory and they're going to go with the option that they at least are like, well, these guys, these guys have people in on the ground in Ukraine. Um, so I'm at least going to watch what they have to say because you are blogging over there. Um, and, and I get it. I, like I, I want, you know, something competitive. I want, I don't trust this information, but I probably trust it more than the dude in his PJs blogging. Uh, so you, you do have to, I think you do have to be good. And I worry all the time. I completely sh- like share those concerns all the time that some of these new institutions are just, you know, it's hard. There's, there's no question about it because everyone is against you. The entire culture is against you. Um, but I, I do worry about some of the institutions for sure. Yeah. I, I think so. one of the things your, your colleagues, um, Crystal and Sager have done that I, I think is really smart uh, is building a really great set, a really professional looking set, wearing, you know, a suit and a dress every day, um, I actually think that that does matter as we sit here in our flannel and t-shirt. Um, but this is not the same kind of product. Like this is not, you know, this isn't trying to be mainstream. This is a conversation right. for nerds and weirdos. Sorry. We audience. are the fringe. Um, but, but <laughs> kidding. like, I think it's very smart because you don't, it's exactly what you're saying. If you're trying to get people to move away from their muscle memory, like you're being judged at a higher standard. Um, and I, and you have to realize that, and you have to play into it. Um, anyway, what what did you think about? Let's let's you know talk about the debate for a brief second here, not too long because I'm tired of talking about it. But I'm sure everyone else is tired about talking about it too. But um, what do you think? Who do you think won the debate? Does it matter who won the debate? Is it just the the, the midget debate? <laughs> it's very much just like the second tier debate was in 2016, where they would put like Lindsey Graham on a second stage on a debate that nobody watched except for journalists. Uh, That was my interpretation of basically the whole debate. And I've been beating this analogy into the ground over and over again. But uh, one way that I've been thinking of it is you have um, Ron DeSantis, who's like, the varsity player who's been forced to just practice with a JV squad. You have Vivek Ramaswamy, who's the freshman who's trying to get on the JV squad. And then everyone else is, is JV. Um, and also you can put Mike Pence in the varsity basket just because he's been the vice president of the United States. And Pence is constantly like dunking on the JV players, just like aggressively dunking on the JV players. Like he's, you know, in the championship game. Um, and Vivek is taking dunks that he might miss, but he's taking those dunks left and right because he wants to prove that he can jump. It doesn't matter if he makes the shot. He just wants you to see that he can jump. Uh, and so the, the reason I think that's helpful is that I really think DeSantis um, did exactly what he had to do, which was not take risks get in the background um, and and knock the balls that are thrown his way out of the park, like just hit them, uh, get on base, like do what you need to do. I keep like, I'm torturing these sports metaphors, but um, like he was just, he didn't take risks because he didn't have to, because if you go into that debate thinking that anything that happens um, within that two hour time frame is going to significantly help you eat into somebody's 40 point lead who is not in the room. You're delusional. You're delusional. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's not surprising that Vivek, you know, maybe shot up in some flash polls. I don't know that he has the uh, steam to keep traction and to like really sustain that momentum. Um, I think he probably has a pretty low ceiling 
to be honest, uh, but he did exactly what he needed to do, which was get out there and be the center of attention and increase his name ID, which he was successful at doing. So all this is to say, I mean, I just think the most important thing about the debate is that it wasn't going to eat into the 40 point lead and uh, substantially. And the entire political class treated it like it, it could upend Donald Trump. And I found that very irritating. Um, yeah, I'm not sure your dunking analogy works, uh, <laughs> not just because of the multiple sports involved, but uh, because it would be the equivalent of a guy who's running around dunking on the, the freshman, but he just captained the team to, you know, the worst finish for the last you know, I guess in the high school analogy, it'll be the last three years, right? He's the senior who captained the team for four years and they lost every step of the way. And the dunking comes off differently, I think, uh, to people now. That's not to say that people loved how um, Vivek Ramaswamy, at first time we've had someone on the debate stage who's a former high noon guest. Um, hey, hey, wow. All right. You haven't, you haven't had Nikki Haley on. <laughs> um no, I mean, I think he's a smart guy. Uh, I I think he his performance was probably incredibly polarizing, and some of the polls bear that out, right? Where, like, people didn't know who he was before. Some of them loved what he had to say. A lot of people didn't love it, which is why his, like, his um, favorability ratings actually plummeted. Like, they both went up and down, but the down went down so much higher or by a larger number. So his favorability ratings ended up pl- uh, plummeting. I think... I mean, really, he is just, I, he, I guess he hopes that he's Trump's heir, right? If Trump, for whatever reason, um, you know, whether it's because he's literally sitting in a Georgia jail, which would be a constitutional crisis of enormous magnitude, um, or because, uh, you know, he's an old guy, I hate to say it, uh, that that Vivek is going to get the blessing of Trump, that he's just going to bow out of the race for health reasons or something else, and that Vivek is going to get the endorsement. I mean, that that's what it it sort of seems like to me. Um, I do think the exchange between Pence um, and Vivek was very revealing that where, I don't know, I, I keep uh, using this, this, the one weird trick analogy, you know, <laughs> when you're scrolling stuff and it's like one weird trick to know if you have heart disease, one weird trick to lose 80 pounds right? <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, and it's like some kind of weird snake oil thing. Um, I, I feel like it's the one weird trick mentality, um, when it comes to, to Pence and the sort of morning in America routine. And I really do think that it's, it's a generational thing, right? Where, um, I think particularly boomers, um, and older voters, they, they can't quite believe that American institutions are as rotten and corrupt as, I think the younger generations have no trouble believing them to be at this point. Um, and so they think, well, oh, and I think Pence even literally said, right, we just need our government who's as good as our people, right? Um, all we have to do is swap out a few people in the government and everything is going to be fine. Um, that's that's a very, I don't know, to me that reads as, as wildly optimistic. And Vivek, I think, won that exchange, uh, at least in the eyes of, not just for me, but I, I, I'm pretty sure like a lot of the Gen X voters, uh, millennial voters who are not in, in the palm of the left are probably, you know, nodding along with that. I think there is a, a dark mood in the country. Uh, I don't think mourning in America is, uh, it's more like, oh, you know, M-O-U, uh, mourning in America than it is in 1983. Um, that, and- was a, that was a boomerism right there. Um, morning in America. How about morning in America? Um, probably a boomer joke, but anyway, uh, no, I don't know that that exchange to me came off as extremely relevant about where a lot of the Republican party still is, um, and unable to confront essentially the, the, and, and, and it makes sense because if, if you're a small C conservative, right, these, these are not small C conservative times. We now have institutions that, do not need conserving. Uh, if you if you hold that there is any content at all and that conservatism is anything more than progressivism going the speed limit, 
then you have to be in, to some degree or another anti-institutional. And that does conflict with some deep sense of small C conservatism. Nevertheless, it's very clearly where the base of the Republican Party is, um, at least to my mind. I don't know. Uh, do you think there's just like a lot of people who don't have that? Uh, do you think Do you think that it has to be, a, do you think that a uh, sort of morning in America campaign, forgetting for a moment about the specifics of Reagan-esque policy, right? But like the perspective that, that yes, so, you know, we're just going to fix a few things real quick um, and that that we're going to actually be able to return to the glory days of, of the 1990s or, or the 1980s. Do you think that that is something that appeals to people or do you think it comes off as Pollyannish? I thought that was one of two moments that were like genuinely worthwhile at the debate, and both were between Vivek and Mike Pence, of all people. One of which was when Mike Pence sort of turned to him and was like, you know, pipe down, little guy. Uh, basically, like, we need somebody with experience to handle the government at this point. Like, we, we can't afford to send somebody with inexperience in, which may be a perfectly fine argument to make. It is not an argument that his base wants to hear dressed up in that level of sanctimony because people, and he should know this better than any, better than anyone, basically, um, people are completely tired of the political class to the point where they actually would trust an outsider way more than an insider because they feel like they're getting screwed by the insider year after year after year, even when they say the right things. But this gets to what you're talking about in the second exchange, um, because I think it shows that Mike Pence and people who are in his camp are not willing to concede that a huge swath of Republican voters um, are in that sort of mindset where they actually, they really don't want a political insider and they don't want to quote, conserve these institutions. They just genuinely want to throw all the bums out. Uh, and, and that is a difference. I think that they are not willing to like fully reckon with like how deep seated that is in the Republican base. You would think after, you know, being part of the conservative movement as Mike Pence has been, which has had this populist strain going back to when he had a talk radio show in Indiana, going back to the Tea Party movement that he was a part of and going back to the Trump populist wave that he was very much a part of. Um, I, I don't know if it's for Mike Pence, a psychological thing with having gone through the like actual horrors that he did go through on January 6th, that he just doesn't want to um, you know, believe that this is a significant uh, force that you know people you, you sort of need to have a conversation with, and I'm not talking about rioters. I'm talking about that kind of anti-establishment uh, wing of the Republican Party, which is basically the entire Republican Party now, and which is why you can't talk like that. I mean, Reagan uh, used "Morning in America" as a re-election campaign. <laughs> it wasn't a "Put me in office" campaign like sunny optimism. It was. Uh, we've actually done some things. Hope you're feeling better. Reelect me. I'll keep the momentum going. Message. It wasn't. Hey, things are actually okay. Um, it, it was literally. I have made things better, <laughs> and that's not a message that like Mike Pence really can can make or i mean right now it's not um so because throughout his administration the sort of weaponization that you know people really care about got worse um then biden came in and the culture war hit a fever pitch and a lot of these problems got worse so it, it's just completely tone deaf and that's like a cliche thing to say but um i think for him maybe it's this like psychological unwillingness to to reckon with what the Republican Party has become and to empathize, again, not with rioters, uh, but to truly empathize with people, uh, whether they're younger or they're just of a different social class, you know, than the suburbs of Indianapolis or of Fort Wayne or Milwaukee or Chicago. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people in the suburbs who, you know, despite probably having high levels of obesity and tech addiction. Um, materially, they're doing better than a lot of other people in the country, and, and they're okay. The upward mobility still exists for them. Their neighborhoods are relatively safe. They're able to put food on the table and save. Um, that is not representative of the majority of Republican voters or voters in general. Uh, and, and for me, maybe that's the best explanation for it. After having a front row seat to all of this, all I can say, he's a smart guy, uh, all I can say is maybe it's a, s a psychological sort of block. Yeah, um, certainly a divide, if not if not a block. Um, 
it's it's interesting. The one other thing that I was thinking about when I was watching this debate, and this is this is actually not necessarily at least a, a, a knock on Vivek, but um, th- there's been these videos going around of, of uh, young Vivek asking questions at a candidate forum, <laughs> I think in 2008. Uh, but there's also apparently, so Pete Buttigieg was at the same exact forum. And it struck me as sort of a, a moment. Um, we have these two bright young guys, hustlers, both obviously looked in the mirror at age 12 and were like, you're going to be president someday, right? Um, so my, I have sort of a nebulous problem with this that is, is goes beyond the particulars of either one of these people. Um, so whether, you know, you hate them or love them or or love one or hate the other, it seems to me that we do have a society and I'm thinking about this a lot because I'm finally putting the finishing touches on an essay I've been writing forever about what I think is wrong with Palo Alto and with the Palo Alto model that I grew up in um, is that it, it really does select for a few things that on their own are not bad, but to me do not add up to leadership caliber, right? At least on their own. And that's, that's, that's intelligence, right? IQ of a certain type. Um, it's, hard work, um, many hours. It's, it is being able to color within the lines, right? Um, being able to advance in this kind of like academic complex credentialism complex um, that involves necessarily a certain amount of, um, of compliance uh, in terms of, of now with the ideology of that, that professional class, right? Um, and again, none of these things are in isolation the worst thing ever. And many of them are, are positive traits. Certainly hard work is a positive trait, right? Certainly uh, having that kind of American hustle, I think, is a positive trait. Um, having uh, Being a smart person is obviously a good thing. But I, I think about who our best presidents have been, for example. And it's it's not clear at all to me that the smartest presidents have been the best ones. Our smartest presidents, probably a handful of them, right? Um, Wilson, Nixon. Um, you know, uh, it's hard to be president if you're an idiot. Don't get me wrong. If you can't tie your shoes, you're probably not on the presidential shortlist. Although I'm sure there are people who would argue with me on, on several of our presidents, but, um, you know, the, the, the most universally appreciated president by in his own time, right. was George Washington. I, I think if you'd administered an IQ test to the founders, right, George Washington probably wouldn't crack, crack, uh, crack the top 10. Um, there were an, an enormous number of brilliant men at the founding, involved in the founding, and yet they all deferred to this guy um, and all found him to be worth following because he was a, a leader of men. And I think that has, you know, has something to do with virtue. It has to do something with a certain amount of vitality. Um, like especially I think masculine vitality actually um, that, that there's clearly something there, there are qualities that are not measured by this, this kind of credential professional class. And you can throw sort of a you know, capitalism into the mix too. Like, that, that, or have we designed an economy and now a political system that, you know, elevates people like Ramaswamy and Pete Buttigieg, you know, to the exclusion of other qualities that are perhaps more ephemeral that don't show up um, on, you know, an SAT or, or LSAT test, right? Um, that that are, are somehow more tactile, more... Um, more in some ways more like personal and, and have more to do. Um, and you can throw, if you want Ron DeSantis into this mix, although I, I do think he's a little bit in the middle. He doesn't have like Trump's charisma for sure. Yeah. Um, but he clearly has a, f- a flair for actual executive authority. Right. Um, he's not a technocrat. No, he's, he's not a technocrat. He's a, he's a nerd maybe, but he's not, he's not a technocrat. Um, I don't know if that comes from the military or or what in him, but he's clearly not that same kind of like technocratic manager or managerial type. And I don't know. I, I, a lot of this still, as I said, is, is kind of nebulous in my thinking, but I, I have the strong gut instinct that we are selecting against some qualities that are necessary for genuine leadership or statesmanship 
um, when it comes to this kind of uh, professional class and whether that's in our political class, we could have all kinds of reasons for that. But but even in our economy, we're not, I mean, I think about like the titans of industry of the 19th century, like you think of a very different class of people than we think about billionaires today, right? Mm-hmm. Like Jeff Bezos is not a 19th century, uh, you know, <laughs> depending on your perspective, right? Titan of industry or robber baron. baron. Yeah. It's just not, he doesn't have that like that quality to him, that sort of like dominance quality to him that makes men flock to, to follow him or even women flock to follow him, right? He just, he doesn't have that. Uh, we have a, a sort of society of billionaire nerds who don't seem, you know, often seem unable to look up from their own shoes. And then those of them that do, they have this very like systematic way and technocratic way of looking at the world and solving problems, which has its uses, but seems to me has also has its limits and we're running into them. Yeah. uh, There are a couple of things I would say. One, I wonder kind of what all of this says about masculinity. Um, And that isn't to exclude wonderful uh, girl bosses like uh, Sheryl Sandberg or Hillary Clinton from the conversation. We would not want to do that under any circumstance because they uh, deserve a seat at the table. But it is to say that uh, there was, uh, while you were talking, I was actually thinking about, because we've, we've discussed this before that the 19th century, uh, either you see them as Titans of industry or robber barons, but that archetype of Carnegie or Rockefeller, whomever it is. Um, And I think the first person actually to be full circle here that put that in my mind was Tucker Carlson who did a monologue, I don't know, like maybe five years ago on the differences between today's class of billionaires and the Gilded Age's class of billionaires. And we can all come to this discussion with the uh, sort of premise, accepting the premise that uh, a lot of the so-called robber barons, whether they were robber barons or not, um, did not conduct themselves honorably in every circumstance. There's no question about that. Uh, At the same time, though, they existed in a culture of shame and they existed in a culture of small r Republican virtue that does not exist today. And I think maybe Obama like ushered in this era. And there isn't, that isn't to say there wasn't a sense of sort of shamelessness in the Bush administration um, from Dick Cheney or others uh, when they presented information, dubious information to the American public as though it was, you know, concrete truth. Uh, that, that isn't to say they didn't have problems. I do though think when you look at the sort of archetypical personalities of the technocrats, um, there's a sort of uh, sliminess or a, like a Pete Buttigieg is running away from taking responsibility for uh, all of these things that have happened under his watch with airlines and trains. Um, he, he's never sort of man enough to step up to a microphone and say, I take complete and full responsibility uh, for this problem. He's constantly pointing figures in other directions uh, and, and constantly running away from the problems and trying to figure out how to sort of shape his image um, in a way that like is, he seems more concerned about his image sometimes than the substance of the, the question. And I'm just, all I'm saying is not that, you know, one group of people is better than another group of people. It is to say, I think for all of the horrible flaws that our culture had at the time um, among those things was, you know, obviously rampant racism um, that was codified into law in certain parts of the country. Uh, there was that sm- sort of small R republicanism uh, that meant you had a duty to your community uh, that you meant that meant you had a duty, not just to yourself. And, and maybe I just sort of talked my way into the point that technocrats uh, have this sort of naked self-interest that's incredibly unbecoming um, and masculine and makes for poor leaders. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, there's definitely something about the the service to something higher, um, and even even as late, like I'm thinking now about Teddy Roosevelt, for example, who was born into uh, the highest echelons of sort of privilege. Um, now we might call it. Uh, he was born into as a member of the elite, right? Um, but but took it as sort of a requirement for himself to have respect for himself that he would. Uh, that he would put his own life on the line, that he would lead men in a real way um, before accepting positions, some of the positions that he held later in life, including president, right? That that there was something that he could learn, um, 
not that the, 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 the kind of leadership uh, that is required is something that cannot be learned uh, through spreadsheets, even though he was, he was a quite, quite a historian, by the way, quite a scholar and a historian wrote, wrote some, some great histories. Um, I think even, you know, even if you run the through line all the way, and and part of this is about, I think the military and, and martial virtue, um, it requires something different. And I think sadly, even in the military today, that is disappearing. In other words, I wouldn't say that our, our class of generals, for example, on the whole exhibit this. Um, I think in a previous generation, they would have much more. Um, it is becoming more technocratic. So in other words, even even the military has become more in this direction, forgetting for a moment about the woke stuff and, you know, ads with, with transgenders in it and everything else. I'm, I'm talking about something separate, like, you know, to get promoted is clearly, it's always been a political game, but this time it's like more of a, a managerial game. And it, it's, it's just, it's just a different, it's a different creature. Our military is a different creature now, but I would say as late as, as John McCain, um, mm-hmm. regardless of what you think about John McCain's particular politics and, you know, being in a moderate side of the Republican party and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, there, there really was in his family still that that sort of treat through line of I mean all most of his his male children served right um, he himself was the son of an admirable admiral who you know went into the military it was expected of him right the idea of it being expected that a son of Jeff Bezos would go into the military <laughs> is laughable it's laughable now right yeah. um, but even as as you know even in our own lifetimes it was not just laughable, but expected for the son of an admiral, right. admiral who wanted to have a future in politics um, to serve, right? And it doesn't make you a great guy. Yeah. Right. It doesn't necessarily make you a great guy. It just means you're responsive to these cultural norms that are objectively better. Yeah. It means that, that you have done something and, and risked yourself in some way, right? Um, if, if you're seriously uh, leading men into battle, you have risked yourself in some way that we demand. Now, of course, Pete Buttigieg, as far as I know, did serve, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, look, I'm, I'm not saying even that it's that it's only. Uh, I think it's connected, but not exclusively with this this military thing. Um, but but it does strike me that that even the military is going away from this this uh, this ethos, especially in the upper echelons of of quote unquote leadership. And it's we, we really have lost. There is something lost. If, if our competitions are between people who have essentially distinguished themselves in being smart asses, um, it's not, I look, I, I'm, I'm a smart ass. I know. Okay. <laughs> out there, you know, laughing at me for describing myself. I get it. Um, Maybe you're more of a dumbass. I don't know. You flatter yourself. Uh, yes, maybe I'm flattering myself. But, you know, I, I know that and I do think it's connected, by the way, with masculinity. I don't think it's like disconnected from the male female divide. But in any case, um, I do think we've lost something. When, when I, I look at what is the pinnacle of what our society produces, what is like the if you are successful in our society, what do you look like? You look like Pete Buttigieg. And I'm not talking now about being a white male. I'm talking about like how you conduct yourself, what your resume looks like, what you've done with your life. Right. Um, I think there's something fundamentally missing in that map. I agree. And actually, Pete Buttigieg, as you were talking, strikes me as an interesting transitional figure. You mentioned uh, the the kind of McCain family within our own lifetime. And Buttigieg, um, you know, I'm not, I have no idea what his motives for enlistment were. I have no idea what prior generations motives for enlistment were um, in, in particular cases, uh, except for that. I know it was a norm and that it was, uh, it felt, you know, embarrassing in certain uh, war times for men not to be able to serve. Uh, that was, you know, the, a fate worse than death for some men. They hated the idea that they couldn't have gone to Europe on the battlefields and whatever you think about that. Uh, it was just a, it was a different, you know, cultural situation. And so I think Buttigieg, um, I, like Bezos to me, Buttigieg, Bezos, um, right now they are just so self, they're, they're so, just self-interested, palpably self-interested every time they're on the the public stage. Uh, And that is, 
again, even like things that they do, things that they don't do, like in Buttigieg's case, he should have, in an, I think in a healthier society, he would have resigned from his post at the DOT over what has happened under his watch uh, to, to people with airlines, uh, the, just the levels of complete chaos. Uh, granted, he took over in a hard time in, in COVID, um, but still, I mean, from the Southwest debacle to what happens, what's happened with supply chains and shipping and trains. Uh, I just think it, in a, a healthier society, all of the incentives would have been to bow your head gracefully and step down. It would have been shameful to cling to that position of power at a different time. Um, and, and Bezos would be completely abjectly humiliated over some of the things he's done at Amazon. And in fact, he, Amazon factories had a significantly worse safety record by their own reporting uh, in years past than their competitors, Walmart, et cetera. Uh, Carnegie was so ashamed, uh, socially stigmatized by what was happening uh, on his watch with his employees, that he decided to turn around and become, you know, charitable in a totally different way. Uh, and I have to think that there was social stigma. It wasn't just a come to Jesus moment for Andrew Carnegie. Uh, I have to think that there was a whole lot of social stigma coming his way that genuinely changed his behavior. Um, and there are different cases uh, like that from years past as well, um, where you look at today and it's just like Mark Zuckerberg. Okay, so you get hounded by... Hillary Clinton, the entire Democratic Party for apparently allowing Russia to change you know, the election, to steal the election from Hillary Clinton. And you turn around and give all of your charity money uh, or a significant, huge portion of your charity money to partisan like electioneering. I mean, it's just, again, it's if that's your way to make up for doing what's perceived as a grave error, um, just partisan, you know, f- just pumping billions into partisan causes. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very different time. Yeah, it's it's occurring to me as you're saying this that the last time, I think I actually watched this era of like shame fall away in terms of business practices. The last time I remember it being relevant um, in the discussion was in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was a series of boycotts of American companies for Chinese sweatshop labor. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Nike, um, and, and relevantly to this discussion, Apple, right. Where there were a series of, of suicides in Apple factories because the conditions were just awful. Now we don't know exactly why people commit suicide, but that, that was the reporting. Um, and, and you know what, it just kind of went away. You know, it just kind of went away. That moment, you know, just just left. And I haven't really there hasn't really been any backlash or shaming of business practices since then. Like it's been relegated really to the sort of AOC left, which is still a small percentage of the American political spectrum. But speaking of things that, uh, you know, people used to commit Harry Curie for, uh, (laughs) let alone resign in the let's say the post-Christian world. um. I, I don't want to close out this hour without talking about Lahaina. Um, I am not going to stop talking about Lahaina until there is some kind of investigation, which I am hope will happen. Uh, at this point, we still, this many days, weeks later, uh, we don't have an accurate death toll. Um, there are outstanding um some over a thousand people still missing is my understanding so this will be katrina level death toll right i think katrina was around 1500 people uh died in katrina um not to mention of course the devastation to property um i think this will be on that level and one it's it's incredible we don't know this yet. And I, I cannot shake the feeling uh, that the media is just not reporting on this because they hope that we will forget about Hawaii um, and the natural disaster there and another couple news cycles. And then quietly on page 14, they will release that the actual death toll is not 114, but something like around you know 1,100 or more uh, with, with a high percentage of children. Um, so you know, you, you, you cover media malfeasance. Um, that's a lot of, of what you've done as a reporter. I mean, I will confess to genuinely, I didn't think the bar could be any lower, but this kind of shocked me still. 
Um, not that they were covering for the Democratic Party and everyone involved here has a D after their name. So, you know, I, that doesn't shock me. But that they would actually not cover an incident of this magnitude with this many Americans who died. Um, that they would just try to memory hole it uh, and not cover it. I, I mean, I expected all the spin. I expected that kind of stuff. Maybe try to shoot, it seemed like in initial days they were trying to like really shoehorn it into the climate change narrative, right? Um, and, and that's before there there are now reports of at least, I, I think uh, at this point, there are seven or eight different points at which this fire could have been prevented or mitigated and loss of life could have been prevented or mitigated by pure government ideological incompetence. Um, you know, where is the story going? Are they going to, are they going to get away with it, Emily? I'm Are they going to get away with, with just memory holding an incident where hundreds and hundreds of Americans likely died? Yes, because once it goes away, it doesn't come back. Uh, and, and it actually reminds me most of the Las Vegas shooting that really dipped out of news coverage quickly and never came back. Um, and it's a nonsense excuse that they don't have enough news to cover. If they're, if that is their excuse for the disproportionately low share of the news cycle the story has been assigned to in the last couple of weeks since it happened, um, it's nonsense because there are all kinds of angles to your point coming out about where this could have been stopped. And there's all kinds of news coming out every single day about the federal government's response. And in fact, I shouldn't say there's news coming out. I should say there's potential for news to be coming out because uh, what you need to have is an army of, of journalists and activists on the ground in Hawaii. And I know there are, I know there are a lot of people doing a lot of good down there. And I know there are journalists who have done some good work down there, but it's not the army that it should be. Um, and without that, you might not even actually know. You might not get to the bottom of some of the really serious things that are happening during the federal government's response and watching the state government's response, watching the nonprofit, uh, the sort of NGO response to the disaster um, when you don't have enough people on the ground covering it proportionate to its its level of importance. And there's this misconception. The last thing I'll say is there's this misconception that media runs on if it bleeds, it leads. Um, so of course, they'll cover anything that's, you know, a natural disaster, uh, tragedy, they sort of are ambulance chasers in the pejorative sense, and are constantly milking things exactly like national disasters for for drama. They do that sometimes. Uh, but when it doesn't serve a political purpose now, they don't, they don't. Um, and, and that's, I think, you know, when you get to the Harvest Festival and you look back on a bunch of country music fans in Las Vegas and this guy who should have been known to authorities and you're talking to a bunch of survivors uh, and a bunch of families of the victims who are not going to want the issue to be shoehorned into to gun control, um, you might have sadly, tragically have the story that you, you think you want. And uh, if you realize that you can't shoehorn this natural disaster into a broader climate narrative, uh, they might, you know, at best just have a business explanation for that. They might say, listen, if we can't tie this to a broader national, international story, a broader international theme, then it's not going to do numbers for us. Everyone's going to tune out. So we'll give it its, you know, its allotted time. We'll do a little bit. We'll send Nora O'Donnell down there um, and we'll, we'll do what we can, but it's just, it's not going to pop those numbers off the screen. We're going to be losing people if we don't move on to something else for indictments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's really no excuse. Uh, it's just really, really no excuse um, at all uh, whatsoever. Uh, that is, you know, the, the most sanctimonious people in the country telling us that it's just dollars and cents that's more important than uh, worthwhile stories to cover. So I agree with you, Inez. Uh, I'm glad that you're on top of this um, because, you know, there's there's a lot to learn still, and I'm not sure that we're going to learn it. Yeah, if they need me on top of it, it's really scraping the bottom of the barrel here. Um <laughs> Yeah, obviously our our thoughts are with the people who lost family uh, in this incident. Um, I want to repeat again from my episode with Tony Kinnett, uh, who was doing reporting uh, on the ground in Lahaina. If you have uh, a family trip planned, um, do consider Maui. Uh, do not avoid the island, as some people are telling you. That it was the 
that's what he told me the the locals the most that the thing that they were most worried about is um, that people were going to listen to the idea the, the message to cancel their trips to Maui and they really do need that tourism economy there um, and then obviously that if you know if you have a reliable uh, direct connection with someone please do you know if you can share your your wallet um, be it besides your your thoughts and prayers please do so that this this was a devastating devastating fire um and just how devastating we will continue not to know because of media malfeasance um on that somewhat uh, downer note um emily thanks for for doing another episode of of um high noon after dark with me it's always good to have you even when you insult me it's always a highlight of my my month Inez, but i can insult you any day so that's fine too um, and thank you to our listeners. High Noon, including After Dark with Inez Stepman, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.